This is the Serious Sita Podcast, Episode 11, powered by IslamicLearningMaterials.com. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. Welcome to Serious Sita, Episode 11. This is the podcast for serious Muslims who love the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alaihi wasallam and want to discover the beautiful life model he left for us to follow. In today's class, we're going to discuss the following topics: the Prophet's marriage to Aisha radhiyallahu anha, the first pledge of Al Aqaba, Islam begins to spread in Yathrib, and the features and benefits of Yathrib. Stay tuned for Serious Sita, Episode 11. Having said that, also the Prophet, peace and blessing be upon him, made the, the wealthy people, made them feel responsible for their brothers because in the this ummah of yours is one ummah and I am your Lord, so worship me. So the Prophet, peace and blessing be upon him, made a bond of brotherhood between these Muslims, the blacks and the whites and the Arabs and the, the non-Arabs and the Persians and the men and the women and the rich and the poor. They were one ummah and they were a magnificent brotherhood. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. Can everyone hear me okay? All right. Bismillah, alhamdulillah, na'hmadahu wa nasta'inahu wa nasta'aghafiruh. We're going to continue with our class on Sita. Picking up, picking up from where we left off last week, when in the 11th year of the mission of Islam, Prophet Muhammad had met with, the, with a small group of people, about six or seven people from a small village called Yathrib, and he had convinced them of Islam, <clears throat> and they went back to their home after the hot season and began to spread the message of Islam amongst their people also. We spoke how at that time nobody really knew the repercussions of what was going to happen with their meeting and how much things would change in the coming years. We also spoke about during this time, around this time, maybe before or after this first meeting, most likely after, Prophet Muhammad married Aisha, and we're going to go and talk about that a little bit right now. I'm going to first mention two hadiths about the marriage to Aisha. The first one is from Sahih Bukhari, and when Rasulullah said, the translation of which is, speaking to Aisha, Aisha is narrating it actually, and she reports that Allah's messenger said to me, you were shown to me in a dream. An angel brought you to me, wrapped in a piece of silken cloth, and said to me, This is your wife. I removed the piece of cloth from your face, and there you were. I said to myself, If it is from Allah, then it will surely be. And in another hadith, the one that seems to cause all the controversy about this event, also in Sahih Bukhari, but is mentioned in other places as well, when Aisha narrated that the Prophet ﷺ married her when she was six years old and he consummated his marriage when she was nine years old. And and uh, another Sahaba added on to that, I have been informed that Aisha remained with the Prophet for nine years, that is, until he died. So from nine until she, from the age of nine until she was 18. So this is the primary Hadith or the primary story that causes so many issues with some people. And I have even heard some Muslims openly say that they discard the Hadith. They refuse to follow the Hadith because they do not believe that this Hadith is true. Whether one believes it is true or not is secondary. The fact of, of discarding the Hadith in general all the hadith that is, and not and saying that they're only going to follow Quran and nothing else, that's where problems arise because that really takes someone, eventually it leads us out of Islam. And there is no way to follow Islam without following the hadith as well, without, without following the sunnah of Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. 
Now, when it comes to this respect, as far as Aisha being married to the Prophet at such a young age, if we can, for one second, put aside our own cultural sensibilities and what is looked on as good and bad in our own Western culture, which is primarily fueled upon the labor movements of the Western world in the early 20th century, there was a time when most countries, including the United States and others, had no problem with having young children work in really dangerous situations. That is including working in factories, working in shipyards, working in situations that most adults wouldn't want to work work in. But in the early 20th century, the Western world began to move towards more progressive and humanitarian values. And one of the things that they went about was removing the or trying to stop child abuse in general. And this included the labor, the abuse of child labor. And we know it's a big deal now how many countries or many major companies will refuse to work with in countries that use child labor and all sorts of things like that. And even in our own society, the worst of the worst in our own society are child molesters, people who violate young children, the worst of the worst. They're, they're, of all the criminals, of all the different things that criminals can do, people who violate children, sexually violate children, are held as the worst in our own society. And in prison, usually these people have to be segregated from other prisoners, whereas a regular prisoner may have killed 50 men. A person who has violated a child, his life is in danger in prison and he's he will he will be a target when the other prisoners find out what he's done so usually prisoners who are accused of rape in general but especially child rape or or child molestation has to be segregated from other prisoners for his own safety so this shows uh, how our own society has changed in the view of how children are treated as far as labor and as far as crimes committed against them. And this shift in the early 20th century is what has turned the focus uh, in the latter 20th century, in the early 21st century, in the anti-Islam crowd with Prophet Muhammad Wasallam and his marriage to Aisha. Because in our country, United States primarily, I know everyone here is not from the United States, but in the United States, 18, year, 18 years old is the age of consent. And anything below that is considered child rape. There are a few differences. I think some states allow marriage at 16 with permission from the parents and so forth and so on. But generally, 18 years old is the age of consent in the United States. But this is an arbitrary age, and it changes from nation to nation. In some countries, in Europe, it is as low as 12. In other countries, it can be 15 or 16. So it changes, but primarily in the United States, it's 18. That's what most people in this country are are familiar with. And so anything such as this, with the marriage to Aisha at such a young age, is looked on as bad. This is a problem for for many reasons. For one, it is really not fair to judge someone from 1,400 years ago based upon our own cultural sensibilities, based on what we find as being right or wrong. And you can also see if you look at older, older anti-Islamic books or books that were denigrating and and uh, bashing Islam, those that were over that are over a hundred years, they never brought up this topic. They brought up many other things about Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam. They found many other things to talk about, but this issue, his marriage to Aisha, was never a target. It was never something for people to harp on because it wasn't a big deal until the laws in the United States and other Western countries changed to reflect child abuse because for many years, for actually up until maybe the last 100 years or so, child abuse and child molestation was not a crime, quite frankly. I mean, they may there may have been certain states that had laws against marriage at certain ages, but child abuse was not a crime. And it just wasn't. <laughs> really, until recently, we've only heard about maybe the past 50 years or so has abuse really, maybe more than 50 years, maybe 60, 70 years or so, has child abuse really taken a front stage? And many of us, we hear from our parents, and maybe some of us have had experience 
where our parents or our grandparents may have disciplined us in ways that would be classified as child abuse today. So this is really just a shift in society, whereas several years ago, something that we consider child abuse today would not have been considered child abuse back then. So that's just, I'm not, yeah, and it didn't, it did work in many, in many respects. Now there is legitimate, there is true child abuse in our society, no doubt. But what we call discipline was not necessarily child abuse, but it would be, it could often be classified as child abuse now. And as a matter of fact, even in public schools, very often public schools, people, teachers were allowed to administer corporal punishment or spankings or paddling to students. And now that's almost gone throughout most of the country. There are a few counties that still allow it, but even then it's highly, highly regulated and very, very rare. But in the United States, several, you know, 30, 40, 50 years ago, it was quite common for schools to administer corporal punishment itself. So we have to, first of all, be fair not to judge Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu by our own standards, which is really, really, really unfair completely. If he had an issue with marrying young women, then he would have married five or six or seven nine-year-old girls. From all that we know, he only married one. Even Hafsa, when he married her, who was a daughter of Omar, she was very young, but she was in her early 20s. She was what we would consider an adult. And I think she's probably the only young, only the next youngest one before Aisha. Secondly, let's look at it from the culture of that point of time. Generally, in Arabian culture at that time, when a woman reached maturity, when she had her, basically began to have her menses, have her period, she was considered eligible for marriage. And that was pretty much it. It was not about ages or any, how many, how old she was or anything like that. If she was old enough to get married, if she was old enough to have a period, she was old enough to get married. And that's generally how it worked. The next issue is also to consider the lifespan of people at that time. Even now, in some countries in Africa, West Africa particularly, the average lifespan is about 55 years old. Here in, in most Western countries, it's 70 years and up. The United States, I believe, is 75, maybe 77 for women. So in the prophet's time, it was not common for people to live beyond the age of 50. Really, 40 years old was probably closer to the average lifespan. If in modern Africa today, which still has access to modern medication, though limited access, if the lifespan in many countries in modern Africa, you can check this out on the CIA fact book, this open, this is, I'm not coming, pulling this out of my head. If countries today with modern medicine and modern governments and all, have a lifespan of roughly about 55 years old. You can imagine 1400 years ago with warfare and all sorts of things that could warfare, sicknesses, even simple anesthesia wasn't even known back then. Antibacterial medication was not known back then. I mean, people could really get a cut that we could get rid of now with alcohol or with alcohol. I mean, rubbing alcohol and a bandage and wait for it to heal over. Back then, a cut by a cut that wasn't treated properly could lead to someone's death or amputation. That's how serious life was back then and how very rare it was for people to live beyond the age of 40. So you couldn't have the fact right that you have right now with girls waiting until they're in their t- mid-20s and 30s, and they're not really girls, they're young, the women by that time, went to the 20s and 30s to get married. Couldn't wait for men to be in their 30s and 40s to settle down. People, if they expected to have children, they had to get started early. And Prophet Muhammad himself was married at 25. And that was probably about average for men back then, with women maybe being somewhere between five to 10 years younger than that. So people couldn't really get married late. People had to mature quickly at that time. The story, many years later, there's a commander of the Muslim's army who was a son of Zayd ibn Haditha, Usama ibn Zayd, he was 17 years old and he was a general of a, of a, of a, of a military campaign. He was a general of an army. So at that time, people had to mature early. People could not wait until their 20s and 30s. Here we have 
young women and young men get married in their early 20s and they they're completely lost they don't they have very little idea of how to handle business they still got to get advice from their parents and sometimes even live with their parents very often still live with their parents and matter of fact most people even muslims today discourage the children from getting married too early by early i mean in their late teens or early 20s because they say they're not ready for it yeah they're not ready to handle life on their own they want children to wait till their 20 mid 20s to late 20s to get married and so we can see that is a lot of it is really just cultural change women back then and men back then couldn't wait until half their life had passed to get married now there are some some people some muslims who doubt the authenticity of this hadith I don't see anything wrong with it. It is reported in several different hadiths with different isnads, different chains of narration. For from all respects, it looks like an authentic hadith. But there is a possibility, I suppose, because it is not Quran that the hadith might not be accurate, and Allah knows best. Furthermore, we don't really know if Aisha knew how to calculate her age. I mean, they didn't have calendars back then. They calculated the the years going by the months. And so even though that was an, a fairly accurate way, it wasn't 100% accurate because people didn't write down the years they were born, no birth certificates. So there's no, even though she may have said she was six years old, I mean, when you think about a six-year-old, the memory is not 100% accurate at that point in time. While their memory, as far as retaining things, is very good, many of us forget things after you know so many years have passed. So she could have, she may not have been accurate in her, and in her, in the calculating of calculating of her age. There are many things that it could be. So this shouldn't cause a point of faith, uh, a crisis of faith for Muslims. If it is true, if she was married at six and she did move in with the Prophet so some as as his wife at nine, then if you're Muslim, then you accept it that that was something that Allah has allowed for that reason, and also you accept the fact that. Allah, according to the hadith that I just read, Allah gave her as his, to Prophet Muhammad as his wife anyway. And also, if it's true, then there was wisdom behind it. And we've already mentioned, well, I may not mention it here, but I'm sure you've heard much of this before. The fact that she was very young, she was able to ask questions that older people may not have been willing to ask. She was able to be more inquisitive and even a little more challenging to the Prophet than some of his otherwise may have been. She was while she wasn't disrespectful, she was much more assertive with Prophet Muhammad than other than his other wives were. The other his other wives who have, who had all been married before. She was the only one who was a virgin at the time of marriage. All of his other wives had been married before, including Khadija, Anha. All the others had been married before, so they had, had experience with husbands before and how to handle husbands and eagles of men. Where Aisha did not have that experience she was also very young, so when she had a question, she would ask it directly. She didn't really concern herself with whether this was going to you know, upset her husband or anything like that. She had a question about something, she asked him. Whereas a more mature woman, a woman who may have been experienced marriage before, would perhaps find ways to couch her answer or question as something else. So if this is a problem, a crisis of faith for you, like it seems to be for some Muslims, then something you got to work out within yourself. It shouldn't be a crisis of faith. Either Allah, either it is true and it happened exactly as the Hadith said it happened, and in which case Allah has allowed it to happen, or Aisha may not have been accurate in the calculating of her age, or the Hadith may not be accurate, but I doubt that a Hadith is not true. Um, I see no reason to, to disbelieve that the Hadith is true. It's in various books of hadith various chains of narration the last one is probably the weakest one so for someone to say that they gave up all the hadith because of this one hadith is really a weakness of faith in and of themselves so that's really a problem with that person themselves who has a weakness of faith also keep in mind that were this a problem with the arabs at that time most certainly people would have jumped all over this opportunity to use it against Prophet Muhammad because people were always looking for a reason to say something bad about Prophet Muhammad his enemies they would have looked they would have jumped at this occasion oh he's marrying children look at this man I mean you can imagine all the things they said about they they used to say about him 
you can imagine how quickly they would have jumped upon this one. Oh my goodness, this man, he's talking all this stuff about morality and righteousness. And look at this, he's marrying a child. They would have been more than happy to use that against them. But there's no record in the Hadith of the, of the, uh, pagan Quraysh or any of his enemies using this against him. And once again, as I mentioned earlier, if you look through the older books, older anti-Islam books, none of them used this as ammunition against the Muslims and against Prophet Muhammad. They did not come into effect until very, very recently. Hopefully put that situation to bed, inshallah. If you still have questions about it, we can talk about it later. But hopefully this will not cause a crisis of faith for anyone any, any longer if it already has. Remember, it's either true, in which case Allah has allowed it. Aisha may not have been accurate in calculating of her, of her years. Or, and this is probably the least likely option, the hadith may not be accurate, but I don't see how that can happen. Now, after the people of Yathrib, those six people who had made the, hijr, the uh, Hajj, after they made the Hajj and returned to Yathrib with the message of Islam, they began to spread it amongst their clans. And remember, as you mentioned, the Aus and the Khazraj were at odds with each other and trying to mend the fences after many generations and many years of warfare. They're trying to mend the fences. They're like the Hatfields and McCoys of the Arabian Peninsula. They're trying to mend the fences so they wouldn't wipe each other out completely. And so they began to spread the message of Islam amongst their family, amongst their families, so that by the next year, the twelfth year of the of the mission of the mission of Islam, they came to the Hajj season again. This time with twelve people, so it had doubled over. So for the first year was six, the second year is twelve. Might not seem like a big leap forward. But sometimes things take some time. They met with the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu after they separated. Now they came along, the 12 people who came, they did not come by themselves. They came with an entire party of people from Yathrib who were going to Mecca anyway for the Hajj, for the annual pilgrimage that they did every single year. So this wasn't, you know, just 12 people making a trek from Medina to Mecca on their own. So while their companions, talking about the the people from Yathrib, while their companions were, the vast majority of whom were still worshipping idols, continued with their Hajj rites of worshipping idols and all that, the 12 who were interested in Islam, they broke away from that party and went to meet with with uh, Prophet Muhammad Wasallam in a valley called Aqaba. And this was the first pledge of an Aqaba. And the Prophet Muhammad Wasallam talked to them about Islam and he had them take a pledge. And this pledge, it is, you can see some of it, you can see vestiges of it in the Quran, in Suratul Mumtahina. Suratul Mumtahina, I'll read the Arabic from the Surah, and then, and this was the pledge that Prophet Muhammad used to give to women who would flee Mecca to Medina. And, uh, after the Hijra, flee Mecca to Medina to become Muslim. And this is the pledge that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala ordered the, the Prophet to make for the women. We'll say, we'll say the Arabic and then we'll say the English and then we'll go and see how this corresponds or how much matches this first pledge of Al-Aqaba. Qala Allah ta'ala fi kitabihi Ya ayyuha nabiyu idha jaaka al-mu'minatu yubayi'naka ala an la yushrikna billahi shay'a billahi shay'a wa la yasriqna wa la yaznina wa la yaqtulna awladahunna wa la ya'tina bi buhtani yaftarina بِبُهْتَانِ يَفْتَرِينَهُ بَيْنَ أَيْدِيهِنَّ وَأَرْجُلِهِنَّ وَلَا يَعْصِينَكَ فِي مَعْرُوفٍ فَبَايِعْهُنَّ وَاسْتَغْفِرُ لَهُنَّ اللَّهِ إِنَّ اللَّهَ غَفُورٌ رَّحِيمٌ The translation of which is, O Prophet, when the believing women come to you, pledging to you, that they will not associate anything with Allah, nor will they steal, nor will they commit unlawful sexual intercourse, nor will they kill their children, nor will they bring forth a slander they have invented between their arms and legs, 
nor will they disobey you in what is right. Then accept their pledge and ask forgiveness for them from Allah. Indeed, Allah is forgiving and merciful. Now the Pledge of Al-Aqaba, I don't have the Arabic, I can only read the English, but here's the English that this first pledge of these six people, these 12 people said to uh, Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu this is a pledge, you know, we call pledge um, like bay'ah. So they're making, they're pledging to Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu that they're going to, they might be making a contract with him, they're going to do certain things. And this is how the pledge went. We will not worship anyone but Allah. We will not steal. Neither will we commit adultery, nor kill our children. We will not utter slander, intentionally forging falsehood, and we will not disobey you in any just matter. And you see how this matches very much with the pledge that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent down to Prophet Muhammad or ordered Prophet Muhammad to give to the to women many, many years later, almost uh, about six, seven years later. So the pledge that they were doing in in Mecca was very closely matched to the pledge that Rasulullah gave to women several years later who would come as refugees to Medina from Mecca. So this is the first pledge. And so the Quraysh were, sorry, not the Quraysh, the people from Yathrib, we can call them Ansars now. They weren't really known as Ansars yet, but we'll call them Ansars because that's what we all know them as pretty much. The Ansars, they took this pledge and they're going to promise, they made this promise to Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Like, you know, in, um, I know everyone here is not from the United States, but in the United States we used to have a pledge of allegiance. We still have it. It's just not as um, prominent as it used to be when I was a kid. We used to make a pledge of, pledge of allegiance, which is basically stating that the citizen of the country were pledging or promising to protect the country in and of itself, which was represented by the flag. And you know, most of us know the words who went to public school, pledge allegiance to the flag, to the United States of America, blah, 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 blah. You know the, you know the words. And of, of recent years, it's been kind of worked out by liberals and stuff like that. But that's another thing for another day. This was a pledge of allegiance to Prophet Muhammad wasallam, in which the the Ansars were saying that they were pledging or promising, making a solemn oath that they're going to carry out these duties according to what Prophet Muhammad wasallam, told them to do. And primarily of them, the most important, of course, was not to associate anything with Allah. But then also, they had to not just make a pledge for about belief or about worship, but also about how they're going to interact with each other. When they said they will not, we will not steal, we will not commit adultery, we will not kill our children, which is an interesting thing considering the fact that I won't say when you when someone no, no one should kill their children, obviously, but that's not really something that hurts people outside your family you can see how of course you should make a pledge to people not to, that you're not going to steal from other people you're not going to commit adultery because those are things that will hurt other families but here it is Allah and Rasulullah are telling people telling Muslims that you're not going to kill your own children either you're not going to commit violations even within your own household continue on we will not utter slander we will not bring false falsehood and we will not disobey you in any just matter. So with all of the different rules that we just mentioned, which are broad categories of Sharia, the first one is, of course, not to worship anything but Allah. And the last one is to obey the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. That is where our worship and our belief begins and ends. Worshiping Allah and following the tradition and the orders of Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and all the other stuff comes in between that. But they're all important. They're all important and part of being a Muslim. So this was the second pledge of Al-Aqaba. And the 12 men, when the hot season was over, it wasn't 12 men. It was... No, I'm sorry. It was all men. They were all 12 men. There were no women in that group yet. They went. The 12 men from, from Yathrib, they returned to Yathrib and continued to spread the message. But this time, Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu he took a, uh, an extra step. He sent along with them one of the companions from Mecca, a young man named Musab ibn Omer, and sent him to, to Yathrib to continue to teach the people about Islam because they were, they only had two meetings with the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Maybe they last, these meetings lasted a couple of days. There's no way they could have really absorbed everything that they needed to know about Islam. And Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, 
perhaps he wanted to allow those best, but perhaps he wanted to speed things along a little bit so that you saw the first time it was only it only doubled by from six to twelve. Maybe he wanted to get more people to accept Islam much quicker and move things on quicker. Allah knows best what his true intention was, but he sent Musab ibn Umayyah definitely to teach them about Islam. And this is something that we can also take into into account in our days when we have many people. We always love to put up these stories of, of new shahadas and new converts or reverts, however you want to call them, and new people coming to Islam. And so often, people come to the masjid and they take their shahada and then they drop off the map. We never hear from them again or all sorts of things happen. Some Sometimes, alhamdulillah, they hold on strong. Sometimes, unfortunately, they go backwards. They backslide. This is something, an example we can take for our own time in which we don't just give someone shahada and let them loose. Like, okay, our job is done. Go forth, young man, and make your own way in the world. It, it, we shouldn't do that. We Massages, and there are some massages that have it, but too many often do not have it. We have to have a better way of cultivating and culturing people who take shahada. Either have a, I don't know, a peer group, a buddy association, you know, some way, uh, a new Muslim class. We have these things online, alhamdulillah, but people also need something within their masters as well, where people can continue to be surrounded in an Islamic environment. And when they first come in, into Islam, because very often they, they may face pressure from home to leave Islam. They may face pressure from their friends and family that they've known for all their life. They just can't walk away from them so quickly. They may have all sorts of issues as, you know, the shaitan is not going to let them go just because they say, Ashadu la ilaha illallah wa ashadu anna Muhammad Rasulullah. Shaitan is not going to give up and move on to the next person. As a matter of fact, he's probably even going to redouble his efforts and become even more interested and more concerned about pulling them off the path of Islam. And so we have to be much more diligent with taking care of new Muslims or people who recently accept Islam and new shahadas and not just let them fend for themselves in the wild. And Rasulullah, he did not want this to happen either. And he sent Musab ibn Umair to Yathrib to continue to teach the people about Islam and further speed along the process of the spread of the message of Islam. <clears throat> And Musab was fairly successful, actually. There's one story while he was in Yathrib talking to some of the leaders of the different families and different clans in Yathrib. One of the people, one of the leaders of the clan, his name was Usaid ibn Hudair. He, he was not yet Muslim, but he, was, he had heard about this new message of Islam spreading around. And let's try to look at how things were happening in Yathrib. Now let's Yathrib is not a was not a striving city, a thriving city at that time. It was a really not much more than a village. Very, very small, lots of swamps, uh lots of almost a very swampy area, prone to much more rainfall than Mecca. You know, kinda of like an out of the way town that people heard about, they knew it existed. But nobody really went there except, you know, maybe to water their camels in the, in the middle of a of a long trip or something like that. It was not known for any sort of, it wasn't like, um, definitely wasn't like Mecca, which had the Kaaba and which was a major trading center. It wasn't even like Ta'if, which we mentioned had a shrine to one of the major uh, goddesses or one of the major deities at that time. It had really nothing of significance to really attract people there. So Yathrib had grown from, you know, really just families staying there and just, you know, multiplying. It, it did not attract new people for any reason. It was a very small, out-of-the-way village, so to speak. It was really less than a city, maybe somewhere between a village and a town. In my estimation, I believe it's probably less than a 1,000 people, less than a 1,000 Arabs. I'm not talking about the Jewish tribes. There's less than a 1,000 Arabs who live there between the Aus and the Khazraj, especially with all the fighting that was going on between the whole Hatfield and McCoy thing, probably less than a thousand people who lived there. Somewhere, somewhere between 700 to maybe 800 people lived there before Rasulullah made the hijrah. 
So you had less than a thousand people living in this small little village. Uh, that maybe makes more than more of a town, but it's very small. And so news spreads fast. And so when these guys come from Medina, from Mecca, when the six men come back from Mecca and they start spreading their message and people start converting, you know, a little buzz is more than a little buzz is going to really take hold. It wasn't like Mecca where, you know, people could kind of isolate themselves because it's such a big and thriving city. Medina was, well, it wasn't Medina yet, it was Yathrib. Yathrib was very small. And when word got out, it got out very, very fast. And so the people, there were some people who were not ready to accept Islam yet. And one of these guys who was not ex- ready to accept it was a le- one of the leaders of the, I believe it was the Aus clan. One of the leaders of the clans there named Osaid ibn Hudayr, he was not happy with this. And so he came to Ma'ad ibn Omer, who was from Mecca. He came to this outsider, this this man who was from another city, who was spreading this strange new message. He came to him and approached him. He had a, a spear in his hand. He came to him and he said, stop spreading your your stories and stop fooling, stop convincing our the fools and the weak-minded people from amongst us to join your little cult. Stop all this stuff. This is not what we're about. Go back to your home and go back to Mecca and leave us alone. Now, Musab ibn Omer, he had been dealing with the Quraysh, for one thing. <laughs> so, after dealing with the Quraysh, uh, you could probably deal with anything. After 10 plus years of having the Quraysh torture you and persecute you and call you all sorts of names, you know, this guy was an amateur. You know, Musab was very, very comfortable with dealing with people who had things to say about Islam and wanted to try to say something against Islam. So he took a very wise approach. He didn't try to hit him over the head with a bunch of knowledge. He didn't try to call him, he didn't call him a country bumpkin, say, you little, you country bumpkins and you backwards people from Yathad, I'm coming here with this mess and you guys aren't sophisticated enough to accept this stuff. He didn't tell me anything like that. He told him in a very calm manner, look, why don't you just listen to what I have to say and if you like it, you can accept it and if you don't, go ahead and leave it alone. You don't have to do anything with it. You can leave it alone if you don't want to. No, no one's forcing you to do anything. With this rational approach, Osayd ibn Hudayr said, okay, that makes sense. So he sat down and he listened to Musab ibn Omer preach for a while. And he talked about, he told him about what Islam is about, told him about Tawheed. They mentioned some verses from the Quran. And Osayd, who had come forward with a spear and was ready to drive this guy out of town, he accepted Islam, and he was a leader of a clan as well. He was a leader of, he was amongst the leadership of Yathrib, and he accepted Islam after just a few moments of talking with Musab. So he said, well, let me go and talk to my buddy, another leader of a different family within a clan of the, of the Aus. I'm thinking it's the Aus. Forgive me if I'm not sure if it's the Aus or the Khazraj. But he went to talk to Sa'ad ibn Mu'adh, and remember that name because the name comes up very often in the um, after the Hijrah, Sa'ad ibn Mu'adh and Sa'ad ibn Jabal, two two um, prom, prom, prominent leaders of the Ansars. Their names are repeated often because they play a very big role in many stories that come up later on. But he went to talk to Sa'ad ibn Mu'adh about this. He knew that Sa'ad ibn Mu'adh, who was a leader amongst the Khazraj, if he accepted the Islam, then all of his people will accept it also. And so he went and told him about it, and Sa'ad ibn Mu'ad, he also accepted Islam. And before long, by the time the third, by the time one year had gone by, Musab had really done his job very well. There was not a single family in Yathrib that did not have some Muslims in it. Everybody wasn't Muslim just yet, and it was still a minority, but still, there was not a single family or clan or tribe or there was only one tribe really but there was not a single family that did not have some Muslims within their family and for what I can understand here there doesn't seem to have been any fighting or infighting amongst the Muslims and non-Muslims within the Yathrib at this time and I think they're probably done enough fighting anyway and besides now Islam was going cross culture anyway going cross it was crossing family lines between both the Aus and the Khazraj so it wasn't just like you know, one group of people were accepting Islam and the other group wasn't. That would have caused divisions. Now, 
Islam was uniting the Aus and the Khazraj, where they were initially antagonistic and enemies on the verge of mutual destruction. Now they were actually started to become brothers in faith, brothers and sisters in faith, in the fact that now they were all worshiping Islam. And so they're all worshiping Allah and practicing Islam. And so the Ansars who were Muslim were probably closer to their other to the to the other Muslims who may not have been their family members than they were to the family members who had not yet accepted Islam. But in time, eventually pretty much the entire city accepted Islam. By the fifth year of the Hijrah, everybody all the clans in Medina, all the different families and tribes and clans in Medina, they had accepted Islam. There were some who there were some who only pretended to accept. Now there were a few people who only accepted Islam outwardly. But for the most part, everyone accepted Islam and for all intents and purposes, most of them were sincere in their acceptance. Musab was so successful in his dawah, in his approach to spreading the message of Islam, that by the time the 13th year of the message came, by the time the next year, one year had passed and they were, and the next high season was coming along, now, when the party or when the when the pilgrims from Mecca from Medina it wasn't Medina yet from the pilgrims from Yathrib were traveling to Mecca along with the several hundred or so pagans there are now 70 Muslims and they weren't going there to worship idols they're going there to meet the prophet of Allah the messenger of Allah sallallahu alaihi wasallam and this entails the second pledge of al-Aqaba in which now you have a larger party now, 70 people, of which at least two were women. There are 70 people coming to to Mecca now to meet with Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. So you can see how how his spirits or how he would have been much more enthusiastic about what he was seeing from from Yathrib. Remember the maybe you don't may not know this, but the total population of Muslims in Mecca was less than 250 probably less than 200 somewhere between 170 maybe 225 Allah knows best but somewhere around that and so within one year well really two years within two years 13 years of preaching in in Mecca only about 200 people accept Islam two years not even really preaching in Mecca and sending you know Musab there to do dawah in one year Almost half that amount, at least one third of the amount that had converted in Mecca, at least one third, maybe even half of the total amount from from Yathrib comes. So you can see how you can imagine how enthusiastic and how happy Prophet Muhammad would have been to see a crowd of 70 people coming to see him. I mean, coming to see him and accept Islam and make bayah to him and give him the Pledge of Allegiance and all. You can imagine how happy he would have been, how pleased he would have been to see the promise of Allah coming forward, even though it was just the initial steps and there's still much more struggle to go through. You can definitely, one can see the beginning of the ultimate success in this group of 70 people. And so they met now, once again in secret, in the same place as they did before, in this valley of, of Al-Aqaba, to give a pledge, the same pledge to Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu again. This time, however, is a little more solemn and a little more serious. Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu also brought along with him his uncle Abbas as a way of giving him advice and also to watch out for him and make sure that no Quraysh, you know, ran upon the meeting and found out what was happening. So, now it's a pretty large group and people could kind of see where this is going now. The the people from Yathrib, the Aus and the Khazraj, they know that their prophet is struggling in Mecca. They know that he's having problems there, that people are oppressing him, that if given the chance, they would kill him if they could. They know all this and they want to help. They don't have much. They're not a wealthy like the people of Mecca. They're not sophisticated you know, merchants and tradesmen like the people of Mecca. They don't have the Kaaba sitting in the middle of their city like Mecca does. But they're still proud people. They still have the honor and they don't like the fact that their messenger is in such danger and while he's living in Mecca. And so they want to help him out 
and they are inviting him to come to Yathrib and move to Yathrib and they will protect him there. But take some time now. Prophet Muhammad can't go there by himself. He wants to also bring along all of his people who've been suffering with him and being persecuted for the past 13 years along with him as well. He wants to make sure that they are safe also. These people, while the Ansars, the people from Yathrib are definitely important, the Muhajirun, who they weren't Muhajirun yet, but these the first early converts of Islam who accepted Islam from the beginning, they are the bedrock. They are the foundation of the Muslim community. They are the ones who were there when it wasn't popular to be Muslim. When actually being Muslim was dangerous, they're the ones who were Muslim from the beginning and they have to be protected as well. But first, the Ansars, they voice some of their concerns. They're not really worried about Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu not, you know, not being the prophet. They're, they're not worried about even going to war with the, with the Quraysh. They're more or less concerned about some things happening. Like they're worried that, okay, that we will give you our, our pledge now, Messenger of Allah. But what if you people change their minds? What if the, the, the Quraysh change their mind? You're going to leave us to come back home? Or what if we have a problem? You know, you're, you're from Mecca. You have your Quraysh. We're here. What if, we have a problem here and someone wants to attack attack us. Are you going to help us or are you going to go on about your, or are you going to separate yourself from us? And so they're trying to really clarify the details of this pledge. What exactly does this mean? How tight is our relationship? What exactly is going on? Let's get some details. It wasn't all just up in the air, pie in the sky. Let's hold hands, kumbaya. They wanted to know some details. They want to know for sure exactly what they were getting into. And one of the people from Yathrib, they stood up and he began to call out to his people and warn his people about what they were doing. Not warn them like saying, don't do it, but just giving them advice, letting them know that we are doing something that might bring the wrath of the Quraysh upon us. This is, this is basically what he said. We set out for pilgrimage and struck a rendezvous in the middays. We're accompanied by many famous people from us and who were not Muslim, who are not, who are worshiping idols. And now they are Muslim. They have come along with us. We have, we are brave people and we have had many difficulties in the past. But right now, Prophet of Allah, between us and the Jews, there are agreements that we would like to sever because they are unjust. If Allah grants you power and victory, would you expect, should we expect that you would not leave us and join the ranks of your people? Basically, the, he's saying that between us and the Jews, meaning the, the Ansars or the people of Yathrib, the Arabs of Yathrib and the Jews of Yathrib, they had agreements that were really debilitating to the Arabs. They were involved in all sorts of interest agreements, borrowing money from the Jews, and it was really hurting them a lot. And they want to know that if they accept Islam, not necessarily that their debts will be wiped out, but if the Jews came to use this as a reason to bring something against them or to harm them, was Prophet Muhammad going to stick with them? Or was he going to return to his people of the Quraysh? Was he going to stick with them through the difficult times that the Quraysh, that the Yathrib may experience, that the people of Yathrib may experience in the future? And Rasulullah says, Basically, I'm paraphrasing once again, that will never happen. Your blood will be my blood. In life and death, I will be with you and you with me. I will fight whom you fight, and I will make peace with those whom you make peace. Now, the prophet's uncle, Abbas, he's listening to all this as well. He sees all that's going on. He can see what's happening with his, with his nephew. He can see that eventually his nephew is going to have to leave Mecca and go to Yathrib with the with the uh, with the house and the Khazraj, the people of Yathrib, he realizes he's going to have to. He's going to return. He's going to go to Yathrib with them, and he's concerned. While things aren't exactly pretty in Mecca, at least his, his nephew is fairly safe. the The clans of Hashim, the Prophet's own clan, and Abdul Muttalib, so far they have been able to prep to protect Prophet Muhammad Sallam to a, a major extent. They've been able to protect him pretty well. And so he's concerned now because once he leaves Mecca, they can't really protect him anymore. So Abbas says, O you people of Khazraj, 
The Arabs used to call the the. I'm sorry. All you people of Khazraj, you all know the position that Muhammad holds among us. We have protected him from our people as much as we could. He is honored and respected among his people. He refuses to join any party except you. So if you think you can carry out what you promised while inviting him to your town, and you can defend him against the enemies, then assume the burden that you have taken. But if you are going to surrender him and betray him, after having taken him away from you, uh, taking him away with you, you had better leave him now because he is respected and well defended in his own place. And one of the Ansar stand up and said, we have heard your words. And now, messenger of Allah, it is for you to speak and take from us any place that you want regarding your Lord and yourself. And so the people are saying, don't worry, Abbas, we're protecting him. We are going to whatever he asked for us to do. We're going to do it. And so now this is when they ask for the details of the pledge. And they ask Prophet Muhammad to set down the details, and this is what he says. We're going to list the details of the pledge. We heard about what the first pledge of Al-Aqaba, which is mostly things of faith and community. These now are a little bit more concrete. I won't say concrete, but a little more definite. These are the, this is the terms of the pledge of Al-Aqaba. To listen and obey in all sets of circumstances. In other words, they have to accept Prophet Muhammad as their supreme leader. They're going to listen to him and obey him in everything he says. To spend in plenty as well as in scarcity. In other words, not only are they going to give him their loyalty, they're going to also pledge their wealth to the cause of Islam. And if he, if their wealth is needed to support Islam, they have to do that as well. To enjoin good and forbid evil. Basically moral character and moral uprightness and behaving as time. You know, you see now he's not actually asking them to do anything as far as not worshiping anything except the law. They have already had their, their conversion. They've already accepted Islam. Musab ibn Umayyad, he had done his job in Yathrib for the past year. So Rasulullah doesn't have to remind them about not associating partners with Allah, that's already a given. They already accepted that part. Now they worry about the details of how to build this new society. In Allah's service, you will not fear anyone. In other words, you will fear no one except Allah. To defend me in case I seek your help and protect me from anything you protect yourself and your children and your, and your spouses from. If you observe these, these terms, Paradise is in store for you. And now this is when the terms of the Pledge of Al-Aqaba become a little bit more serious. Now the terms are coming up where people can see that violence or fighting or self-defense may be required. Rasulullah asks them, you have to defend me. He tells them to defend me in case I need your help. Protect me the same way you protect yourself and your wives and your children. And this was the second pledge of Al-Aqaba, much more serious than the first pledge, which is more or less community things, uh, communal and social relations, and broad broad aspects of Tawheed and Aqidah, broad aspects of faith and belief and character. Now, this is the beginning of, you can almost say this is like a, the beginning of a constitution for the beginning of the Muslim society where they are pledging to protect the Prophet of Allah, they're pledging their money to in his, in his service, whatever he asks them to do with it, as far as promoting Islam, and they are committed to following him and obeying him in everything they say. He is basically becoming their supreme leader, their ruler, basically. And they are pledging him and accepting him as their ruler. So it was a much more serious thing, than much more serious pledge than the first one. And they all accept it. They make the pledge. And they eventually leave the, the valley and return to their party, their overall party, who are still doing the rites of Hajj. And as in most things in life, when you have 70 people, it's hard to keep anything secret. Eventually, the word got out that Prophet Muhammad had met with these people of Yathrib and they had made a pledge with him. And the Quraysh find out about it. And they go to the overall party from Yathrib, the ones who had come there to worship idols, 
at the uh, at the Kaaba. They come there, and who are they have made the original, you know, the regular pilgrim pilgrimage. They come there and they ask him, and they ask him about it. They ask, "Is it true that you guys have made a pledge with this man who's an enemy to us, who has caused so much problems and discord within our society, who have torn family and turned father against son and son against father? Have you really made a pledge with this person?" Now, the people who had made the pledge, they were just laying down in their camps, in their beds or in their tents or whatever, you know, with their with their other people from their city, from Yathrib. But the vast majority of the people who were in this camp from Yathrib were not Muslim yet. They were still pagans. So they hear the leaders of Quraysh asking them about this, and they made some sort of pledge, and they're like, of course not. What are you talking about, man? We've been here all the time worshiping our stones and idols. There's been no pledge. The 70 people who were part of that pledge, however, they kept quiet and didn't say anything. They neither confirmed nor denied anything about any sort of pledge. So the Quraysh were a little suspicious, but they said, okay, we're going to let you go this time. But we're looking out. We're looking at you. We're going to watch you carefully. And they basically broke off. But now even the Quraysh get an idea that Prophet Muhammad might be trying to leave their grasps and one of the strangest things about them, I never understood how they couldn't stand the guy and they wouldn't let him leave either. It's one of the strangest things. But that comes up in the next class, inshallah, in which we will begin to look at the process of the hijrah, the migration from Mecca to Medina. And before we close off, you want to give you a brief we can probably do this next time, inshallah. All right, let's open up for questions real quick. And then if there's anything else I want to add, I may add it later. Any questions about today's class or anything else dealing with the Sira? All right, if there are no more questions, just a quick description of the city of, or the town of Medina, and why it was such an ideal place. We may talk about it more later on, but one of the best things about Medina was that it had a natural barrier that could protect the city from incoming armies. This barrier was made from volcanic rock. Volcanic rock is based, there was a volcano there centuries and centuries ago, maybe even thousands of years ago, and the lava that came out eventually hardened into rock. It hardened into these large, sharp, craggy rocks that camels and horses couldn't cross over. It's too sharp, it'll cut up their 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 uh, feet and everything and it's very difficult even humans to walk around walk across it is very sharp and very craggy this this created like a natural border in addition to that the jews and also the people of the arabs they have they own orchards thick dense uh thick dense gardens or large tracts of trees with which they grew dates primarily and probably perhaps some other fruits as well but primarily dates and these orchards these trees also created it also created a um, a sort of uh, natural barrier as well, in which, once again, thick trees and everything, very difficult for horses or camels and wagons and stuff like that to get through. This is it's okay to pray in Akar. What is, I'm not sure what Akar is. If you could, I'm not sure if that's a typo. Do you mean an Akaba? A car, okay. Yes, it is, depending on the situation you are in. Yes, it's okay to pray in a car. If you're in a situation where you can't pull over and pray properly, for instance, if it's raining or if it's um, snowing or if you're in a dangerous area, then yes, you can pray in a car. Uh, even if it's moving, even if you're not, even if you're not, even if you're not facing the Qibla. The Quran says that we can pray while riding on, and at that time, People were riding horses and camels. Not much different from riding a car now. So, why yakum? But it all depends on the situation. If you have the opportunity to pull over and pray facing the Qibla, pray, pray properly, you should. But if that is not an option, if you're on a long road trip or if it's raining or, you know, if it's very, very cold outside or some, for the many reasons why you won't be able to do it, you, there are many reasons. So if you're not able to do it, if you even if you just don't feel safe doing it, you know, if... You know, you don't want to pray on the side of, you're in a bad neighborhood and you don't want to stop and pray in a park where you, you see drug violence or anything like that. Don't pray there. You can pray in the car instead and Allah knows best.
Any other questions? Alrighty. If there are none, we will close up here, inshallah. Jazakallahumullah. Jazakallahumullahu khairan. Subhanakallahumma wa bihamdika. Nashadun la ilaha la anta. Nasta wa natubi ilayk. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu.